Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well, and welcome to week number one of our study of the Acts of the Apostles, or the book of Acts, as we will be starting our study this morning by looking specifically at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, or at the promise of the Holy Spirit, and at the ascension of Jesus Christ. However, before we get to all that this morning... I thought it would be important for me to offer you all some background and some context on the book of Acts before just diving right into the text here this morning. So think of Acts, church, as the second volume of a two-volume set, the first volume being the Gospel of Luke and the second volume being the book of Acts. And it's a book that was very, very likely written by a man named Luke, who the early church, going all the way back to the second century, including the likes of the church father, Irenaeus, and the father of Latin theology, Tertullian, all affirmed and believed unanimously that this man named Luke was the author of the book of Acts. Which leads to the question then, well, who exactly was this man named Luke? And as Colossians 4.14 makes clear, This man named Luke was a beloved physician or doctor and thus a well-educated man. And as we see in Philemon 24 and in 2 Timothy 4.11 was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul as well, who, and although there is a good bit of debate on this, likely finished writing the book of Acts sometime between 62 and 64 A.D., And I say that for a couple of reasons, church. Number one, because there is no mention of the fall of Jerusalem in Acts, which took place in 70 AD, something you would think Luke would have at least mentioned in Acts if it were written after 70 AD. Number two, because of just how abruptly the book of Acts ends. And in that, it's as if Luke just concluded the book of Acts when Paul was put under house arrest in Rome because Luke at that time simply had brought his writing in Acts all the way up to the current day. And finally, number three, because of the lack of references and mentions and knowledge that Luke seems to have with the letters or the epistles written by the Apostle Paul, which seems to assert then that Luke wrote Acts before these Pauline epistles were making their rounds throughout the early church. And thus overall, what we seemingly have here then in the book of Acts is a book written by a well-educated doctor named Luke, who was also a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and to seemingly finish this book somewhere around 62 to 64 AD, or about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Which leads to the question then, why? For why exactly did this doctor named Luke write this book called The Acts of the Apostles? And I think in order to understand that question properly, we need to understand how Luke viewed his two-volume set of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles as a whole. To which, as John Stott explains it, For Luke did not regard volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, merely as the story of Jesus Christ from birth 
through his sufferings and death to his triumphant resurrection and ascension, and volume two, the Acts of the Apostles, merely as the story of the church of Jesus Christ, from its birth in Jerusalem, through its sufferings and persecution, to its triumphant conquest of Rome some 30 years later, since the contrasting parallels that Luke draws between the two volumes are not between Christ and his church, but instead between the two stages of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Therefore Luke then, for he wrote the gospel of Luke about all that Jesus Christ began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And as Luke implies, he wrote acts about what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension, especially through the apostles whose sermons and authenticating signs and wonders Luke would faithfully record. Which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. The Holy Spirit will empower the apostles of Jesus Christ to take the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. The Holy Spirit will empower the apostles of Jesus Christ to take the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And thus at this time, let's open our Bibles up this morning, church, to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have and to be reading your very own copy of the Word of God, which you can start doing today by opening that brand new Bible of yours up at this time to page 909, and by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Acts chapter 1 this morning, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 11, where Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an honor it is this morning to open up your word to the book of Acts, to see all the teachings and the works of Jesus Christ that he continued to do take place after his ascension. Father, as I was asked today, I humbly do not know how long this will take to work our way through the book of Acts, but I know it will be good because it is your word. So, Father, I pray for myself and all the other elders and gentlemen who will be preaching through Acts that we be faithful to your word and that you be glorified above all else. And, Lord, I pray that on this day you help all of the hearers here that their ears be opened, that their eyes be opened, and that their hearts be softened to your word. Lord, strengthen them with this word, I pray. And I also pray this morning, Father, that you help my lisping and stammering tongue. Father, I pray that I am able to communicate exactly what you want me to communicate this morning for the good of these people and for your glory. Lord, I pray for your help this morning, but I pray as... Alex said earlier that everything about this service this morning, this corporate worship gathering, that it be a sacrifice that is glorifying to you, Father. Through this wonderful work we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, the apostles of Jesus Christ are promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Point number one, the apostles of Jesus Christ are promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verses one through five. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Luke opens his prologue in Acts, by initially noting in verse 1 that in the first book, again referring here to volume 1 of this two-volume set, that being to the Gospel of Luke, where church, verse 1, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day he was taken up. In that Luke, 
in the Gospel of Luke wrote about the many acts and deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ and about the many teachings and parables of the Lord Jesus Christ until the day, verse 2, that he, Jesus Christ, was taken up. Or until the day, as Luke 24, 51 makes clear, he, Jesus Christ, ascended into heaven. And Luke here, church, as we also see in verse 1, was addressing a man here by the name of Theophilus. And although we do not know much about this man named Theophilus, what we do know is that Luke also addressed, or dedicated, as some put it, his gospel to this man named Theophilus as well, as Luke chapter 1 states. And that this man's name, Theophilus, meant friend of God, or loved by God. Nevertheless, what I really want us to grasp and to see here this morning, church, in verses 1 and 2, is that although the gospel of Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, that word began here in verse 1, as previously alluded to, suggests that Luke now, in the book of Acts, is about to go on to tell his readers here all that Jesus continued to do and teach following his ascension into heaven. In essence, Jesus' ascension then, as one commentator put it, acts as the hinge, if you will, of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Since the ascension of Jesus Christ marks the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of his heavenly ministry. However, as we go on to see then in the text, that Jesus Christ did not ascend into heaven until, verse 2, he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Those commands seemingly being, as we see in Luke chapter 24, verses 48 and 49, that you, Jesus' apostles, are witnesses of these things. But behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. And not only that, church, but it was also these same apostles, the apostles whom Jesus Christ had chosen and whom Jesus Christ had given these aforementioned commands to through the Holy Spirit, who Jesus Christ also then, verse 3, presented himself to alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And that after Jesus Christ suffered and died on that cross at Calvary, and three days later then rose from the dead, for he, Jesus Christ, also then presented himself alive to his apostles, resurrected to his apostles, and has raised from the dead to his very apostles as well. By verse 3, many proofs, or as the King James Version puts it, by many infallible proofs. Some of those proofs being, as we see in Luke chapter 24, that after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he stood among his apostles, spoke to his apostles, showed his hands and his feet to his apostles, and even ate some fish in the presence of his apostles, appearing to them, verse 3, during 40 days. And that following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ then continued to appear to his apostles in intervals over a span of 40 days. And that while doing so, he, Jesus Christ, then was speaking to them, verse 3, about the kingdom of God. And what Luke means here, church, when he mentions the kingdom of God is 
Brian Vickers explains it, is the Lord's rule and the Lord's reign. However, this kingdom is not localized with borders or made up of a particular people connected politically or culturally or ethnically, but instead this kingdom is established in the lives of men and women through the power of the gospel. And it's a mustard seed kingdom that appeared insignificant at its beginnings, but will have an unimaginable ending, whereas its king rises from the dead, ascends to the throne, and then sends his power into the lives of his followers, which enables and emboldens them to speak openly of him and to offer others free entry into his kingdom as well. And those who believe in this message enter his kingdom which will one day be revealed as uncontainable in time or in space when the King Jesus Christ returns. For that is the kingdom that Luke will trace out here in the book of Acts. And yet, as we go on to see then in verses 4 and 5, that while staying with them, or as the NIV puts it, that on one occasion that Jesus Christ ordered his apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In essence, repeating here, church, that of Luke chapter 24, verse 49, that the apostles were not to leave the city of Jerusalem, but instead were to wait or to stay in the city of Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Which leads to the question then, for what exactly is this promise of the Father? And the answer to that question, church, is, as the prophet Joel shared in Joel 2.28, that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And as Luke goes on to write in verse 5, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For this promise of the Father then is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thus, in light of that, for I want to pause here for a second, since as Albert Moeller notes, verses 4 and 5 introduce an incredibly important theological theme that will develop throughout the book of Acts, that theme being the theme of the Holy Spirit. Since when the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, their lives and their ministries then were radically transformed. For Acts shows us that Jesus Christ sent the Spirit to make the proclamation of the gospel effective, and that the church is built by God's word and God's spirit, which is something that we must remember here today, that God does not build his church through gimmicks or through programmatic cleverness, nor is the church dependent on our marketing strategies for its success but instead our only hope to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is to faithfully proclaim God's word and to then trust God's spirit to make our proclamation effective. And thus, as we wrap up point number one this morning, church, for I want to do so with this. For I know that there are a lot of local churches out there today throughout evangelical America that show movie clips during their church services and that play secular music during their church services, and that have concert-like experiences 
comedians on stage and give TED Talks as sermons during their church services as well. And that these types of local churches, that they do indeed attract lots of people and appeal to lots of people, captivate lots of people, and are even loved by lots and lots of people. However, the universal church does not grow simply through the telling of funny jokes. Nor do people come to faith in Jesus Christ merely through the heralding of famous movie quotes, TV lines, or trendy secular music. But instead, the universal church is built, and people do come to faith in Jesus Christ when the infallible and inerrant and inspired, authoritative, life-changing, heart-piercing, living and active Word of God is proclaimed, and when the Spirit of God uses it to convict sinners of their sins to drive them to the cross and to believe in the gospel, which is why we then, here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, no questions asked, week in and week out, preach the word of God and proclaim the gospel of God, all while confidently trusting that the spirit of God will use it exactly as he sees fit to get sinners to fall on their knees, repent of their sins, and to believe In the gospel. Which brings us to point number two. The spirit-empowered apostles of Jesus Christ will be his witnesses and will take his message to the ends of the earth. The spirit-empowered apostles of Jesus Christ will be his witnesses and will take his message to the ends of the earth. Verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And thus, in light of Luke just sharing that Jesus Christ, during the 40 days after his resurrection, that he not only appeared to his apostles, but also then taught them about the kingdom of God and about the coming of the Holy Spirit. For here then in verse 6, Luke seems to be sharing about Jesus' last and final discussion with his apostles prior to his ascension, where Jesus' apostles asked him in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Or as the New Living Translation puts it, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And although it's difficult to figure out exactly what Jesus' apostles were thinking and assuming here when they asked Jesus Christ this question, I think it makes the most sense to assume, in short, that Jesus' apostles here were likely expecting that since the promised Holy Spirit was about to come soon, that soon also then Israel's kingdom would have to be restored as well likely expecting the restoration of the kingdom of Israel to mean Israel being restored politically 
and driving out and defeating the Romans militarily and having national independence again and sovereignty. And thus, in light of all that, Jesus Christ then, for he says back to his apostles in verse 7, for it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Which is very similar here, church, to what Jesus Christ said to his apostles back at the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, when he said, but concerning that day or that hour, primarily referring there to the coming of the Son of Man, that no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And yet Jesus Christ enacts here, for he does not stop there in addressing his apostles, but goes on to say to them in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In essence, making clear to his apostles here in verses 7 and 8, as F.F. Bruce writes, that whatever purposes God might have for the nation of Israel, those were not to be the concern of the messengers of Christ. Since instead of political power, which had once been the main object of their ambitions, a power far greater and far nobler would be theirs. Since when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Jesus assured them that they would be vested with heavenly power. And thus, just as Jesus Christ had been anointed at his baptism with the Holy Spirit and with power, so too his followers were to be similarly anointed and enabled to carry on his work, this work being a work of witness-bearing, witness-bearing to the ends of the earth, and nothing short of that was to be the limit of, the limit of their apostolic witness. And that Jesus Christ promises his apostles here, in verse 8, that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we go on to see in verse 8, that they will also be his witnesses. In essence, that they will share what they have seen in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that they will proclaim the significance of it all as taught to them by Jesus Christ as well. And that they will do all of that, verse 8, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, since the kingdom of God wasn't just reserved for the Jews' church, nor just for those located in Jerusalem, church, nor just for those close to Jerusalem, around the city of Jerusalem, or for those who were the neighbors of Jerusalem, but instead the kingdom of God was for people groups from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, church. Hence why the life of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ couldn't just be confined to Jerusalem, church, or just kept solely in Judea, church, or not allowed to go past the region of Samaria, church, but instead had to go to Jerusalem, to all of Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, in essence, also that sinners from all walks of life, even Gentile heathens, could hear the gospel message, believe in the gospel message, be saved from their sins by the precious and redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, and become part of the kingdom of God forever. 
And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, for I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who was here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, exactly who this Jesus Christ is, exactly what this Jesus Christ accomplished, and exactly how this Jesus Christ can save you, non-Christian, from your very sins. And thus, I'll begin this morning, non-Christian, with this. That this Jesus Christ, for he truly is the Son of God, who came into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save his people from their very sins by initially living a life here on earth that was free from any kind of sin. And that the life that Jesus Christ lived, while he lived and dwelt among us, was a life that was holy and righteous and just and good, free from any kind of evil or wickedness, transgressions or sin. And thus because of that, he, Jesus Christ then, fulfilled the law of God perfectly and completely and without any kind of offense, and he did it, non-Christian, all for the very children of God. However, merely keeping the law of God, all for the very children of God, for that was not all that this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because being that the wage of our sin, non-Christian, or the cost of our sin, non-Christian, is that of death. For he, Jesus Christ, also then was nailed to and pierced, crucified and crushed on an old rugged cross at Calvary, and ultimately then gave up his life as a ransom for many. And you know what, non-Christian? It worked And that Jesus' atoning sacrifice on that cross at Calvary, for it did indeed satisfy the justice of our holy God, and appease then, non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God, all toward his sinful children as well. And thus, because of that, three days later, then this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, For he didn't stay dead or buried in some grave, but instead, three days later, he, Jesus Christ, for he rose from the dead, and he defeated sin, and destroyed eternal death once and for all, and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin, and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin, and can clothe you then in his perfect life, in his righteousness, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, and today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so in light of verses 9 through 11, which read, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, 
and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that after Jesus Christ told his apostles that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he, Jesus Christ, then, with his apostles looking on, was lifted up and ascended into heaven. Concluding here, church, as previously mentioned, Jesus' earthly ministry. And beginning here, church, Jesus' heavenly ministry. As he, Jesus Christ, ascends here into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And yet while they, Jesus' apostles, were gazing into heaven as Jesus went, two men then in white robes, Luke indicating here in verse 10 that these two men were angels or angelic beings, for they then said, as we see in verse 11, men of Galilee, again speaking to Jesus' apostles here, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Again, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And thus, in light of that, one commentator, for he shared this rather profound statement, that believers ought to consider their lives in light of the angel's words here to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, and that do believers today live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Since the sure return of Jesus Christ is meant to give strength to believers, to carry out Jesus' will in their daily lives. Not just to be wishful thinking, nor just to be a booster shot of hope for getting through life. Since the future is ours. Since Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Therefore, believers then may follow in the footsteps of the apostles by boldly sharing the gospel in the face of ridicule and danger and unbelief and persevering in the face of unwanted setbacks and disappointments and suffering by believing in God's future kingdom when Jesus Christ returns and definitively establishes the kingdom once and for all. And that if we truly believe that Jesus Christ will return, just as he went up from the apostles, then through God's grace we can face whatever comes and be Jesus' witnesses without fear, since God's promises concerning the future will kill any fear. And thus, in light of the fact, church, that we have a resurrected Savior in Jesus Christ, and an ascended Savior in Jesus Christ, and a Savior who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and who will come again personally and bodily and visibly for his bride, the church, and as just mentioned, to establish the kingdom of God once and for all. For we then, as the children of God, should let that reality then embolden us and bolster us and invigorate us to be willing then to bear witness to the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, even if this world might mock us. 
and to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if this world might torment us, and to boldly and fervently and steadfastly live out our faith in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if this world might try to harm us, scare us, punish us, or imprison us. Since no matter what kind of persecution or wrongdoing, affliction or oppression, mistreatment or torture, injustice or pain that may indeed come our way for the sake of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, for none of those sufferings, Christian, will ever be worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. And thus let the fact then, Christian, that you have a resurrected and ascended and coming again Savior in Jesus Christ comfort you and reassure you and encourage you to continue to faithfully bear witness to Jesus Christ, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and to seek to submit every area of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. No matter what kind of tribulations this wicked and evil world might ultimately try to throw your way. Since our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will one day, no doubt about it. Come again in power and in glory as the conquering king of the kingdom of God for his bride, the church. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body be encouraged and strengthened and invigorated this morning by the fact that Jesus Christ will most assuredly come again. And that because of that, we then as the children of God have nothing then that we need to fear in the here and now. And that we do not need to fear what this world might do to us because of our faithfulness, nor what this world might say to us because of our gospel proclamation, nor even what this world might think about us because of our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, we can always be at peace since we know that any suffering that we may face at the present time, that it will not be worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. And thus let that future reality then, Father, of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, encourage us this morning to bear witness to your Son, to live faithfully like your Son, and to willingly forsake everything that this world has to offer, all for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, killed, and buried, rose from the dead, ascended in to heaven and who will come again in power and in glory, personally, bodily, and visibly for his bride, the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, encourage us this morning in the fact that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who was buried who rose from the dead, Lord, as we see in our text today, ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And that this same Jesus, just as he went up, he will come again. But he will come again, not as a baby, placed in a manger, and wrapped in swaddling cloths. But instead, he is coming as the conquering king of the kingdom of God to judge the living and the dead, to establish the kingdom of God once and for all, and he's coming for his bride, the church.
So yes, in the here and now, we might have to deal with suffering and heartache and pain because of our testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ or for our willingness to bear witness to Jesus Christ. But Father, let us remember the suffering that we face at this present time, that it is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, a glory that we know will come since Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and that he will come again just as he went. To you, Father, be the glory forever and ever, and let this truth encourage us to persevere in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In Jesus' name. Amen.